Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Jolene McElwain, who is going to talk to us about her book, Acidal Creek, which is... Um, a collection of short stories. Um, and she is, this is her debut book. So Jolene, I'm wondering before we get into the book, I'd love for you to read for us. So could you start, um, you have been a teacher for a long time and you have written with your students. So one of these flash pieces in here is a piece you wrote, um, and sort of riffed off with your students of a Shakespeare sonnet. So, um, could you start by reading, uh, an ever fixed mark? Yes, thank you. And thanks so much for inviting me onto the show. This is so exciting. So yeah, this piece um, was um, inspired by Sonnet 116. And I sometimes would have my students read a classic piece of literature and then do uh, do their contemporary understanding of it in their own words. Um, I actually wrote this, though, for myself. I wrote this particular story in a Kathy Fish fast flash uh, class, but that start was with my students. An ever-fixed mark. One close summer evening, sky greening gray for strange weather, western Pennsylvania buckles and beef proprietor Cecily Bargerstock walked around the lumpy-ass paddock through the dust-up haze, kicking everything that seemed uneven. All at once, wind lifted her hat, Bits of hay and dirt splat her cheeks like spitballs. She stopped still, listened for a far-off tempest. It had come first earlier in the day by way of her divorce lawyer asking, How you gonna half a horse, Cecily? How you gonna split a pond in two? Cecily grabbed their best-hand mick, and they gathered up everything that might have the sense to blow away hunkered down in the half-dug cellar where Mick insisted they crawl to wait it out. Cecily held quiet while Mick messed with his damn rosary beads, mumbled shit nobody wanted to hear. Cecily realized in her whole life she'd never wished up the idea of pummeled terrain, buildings coming down, cattle blown up into the skies, lost sheeting, tacks strewn all over tarnation, but hell, better to have the weather split it than to watch her soon-to-be ex walk up the path pointing to every half of everything with those sore-looking bitten nails, those tender hands that held hers as they stood at the spot along the Seidel Creek right after he snugged his dead mother's emerald and diamond ring on her finger, saying, I want us to be one forever. 
those tender hands that used to knead out the knurls in her back each night early on in their marriage, all the while him saying, we're building up a life here together, see? Cecily yelled to the low-ceiling, musty room, let gales gather up and blast through here. Leave nothing, make it bare. And she ran up out of the cellar before Mick could stop her. She let the wind pull her every which way, sending her poor old head square into their pretty signpost her soon-to-be ex had painted, that they'd planted into a hole they dug long ago, filled with concrete, shoring it up enough to handle any storm. Thank you so much for starting us off with that reading. It was wonderful. <laughs> so Seidel Creek is your first um, collection. It's your first book. So can you tell us a little bit about, like, sort of before we get into some of these stories and some of what you did, can you give us a little overview of it and, and kind of how you put this collection together? Sure. So um, this book took a long time to happen. Um, I had started writing the stories a long time ago, um, probably about 2008, I think was the first story I wrote called Seeds. Um, but what happened was I had been um, trying to get an agent and I had written a novel and I went out on submission in that novel found a few agents that were interested, but then said, you know, we're interested in your writing, but we don't think we could sell this particular novel. And so a lot of people had said to me, well, you know, you don't have really a publishing history and you have all these short stories, maybe send some of those out because you never know. Someone could see one of your short stories and, and maybe, you know, want be interested. And that's exactly what happened, which was just mind blowing. I had sent out short stories I'd been sending them out for a while. And then um, Nicole Cunningham at the book group, Literary Agency, she um, found one of my stories on the Cincinnati Review micro um, series and got in contact with the editors there because at the time I didn't have an author website or any way for someone to get a hold of me. So I really wasn't thinking this through completely. But anyway, all worked out. Um, but I did get a couple of agents that did see some of my short stories online and contacted me that way. So I would highly encourage anyone that's, you know, doing that whole agent search thing that it can happen that way. Um, but I don't know how often. But I was lucky that that did work out. But um, so with the short story collection, I really didn't have um, writing a particular collection in mind. I had about 60 stories whenever I was deciding on putting this collection together to choose from because I had been writing anything from flash to like longer pieces. In this book in particular, it's a collection of short stories in flash, but it ranges from like a story that's maybe about 300 words the whole way up to a story that's 11,000 words. So there's quite a range of length. Um, but when I was deciding to put the collection together, I had the opportunity to work with David Joss at the Vermont College of Fine Arts, their postgraduate program. And in it, you were able to work with a mentor for six months at a time, and you could share with them packets each month. So what I thought is, well, you know, I'm getting this opportunity to work with David Joss, who was an amazing short story writer. And I thought, well, I will choose the stories that I think need the most work or that have the most, um, that are kind of thematically connected because who knows after I'm done working with him, maybe I'll, you know, have a collection ready and I can send that out, you know? So that's what I did. I worked with him for a whole year through the Vermont college of fine arts, thanks to an artist grant that I was able to get because as, as everyone knows, that's applying for MFA programs or for any kinds of teaching courses, it's all pretty expensive. There are some free opportunities, but for the most part, it's pretty expensive. So anyway, I 
after I was done working with him, I had the collection together and I was going to send it out to contests and do things like that. And then in the meantime, the agent found me through the Cincinnati Review and then she took a look at my short story collection and um, wanted to see what else I had written. And I had written these other two novels and she took a look at parts of those and then was I was offered representation. And then we went out with the collection um, just... Well, it was March. Uh, I'm sorry. We went out in October of 2021 and Melville House picked it up in March of 2022, somewhere around the end of March. And um, they have been just a dream to work with. They just have been a dream to work with. And I know there is such a feeling out there right now about whether or not publishing houses want to take a chance on short story collections. That's just the reality that we're living in. Um, But I couldn't be happier with the way my agent and my editor have, you know, treated this book and this project. It's been amazing. So it's mostly just short stories set in a rural small town, very similar to the rural uh, small town where I was born, raised and now live. Um, And most of the themes have to do with the kinds of things that I watched people who've raised me, you know, suffer through or become resilient through. Um, There are stories about um, medical issues. There are stories about violence, violence against animals. And I take on some of the stereotypes that people have for people in rural areas. And so that's, that's the collection in a nutshell and kind of how it came to be, but felt pretty lucky with how it came to be. (laughs) Well, and I have to say that um, as someone who is living in a rural space, who grew up in a rural space too, um, and has, you know, moved back and forth between urban spaces and rural spaces. I love to read things that are complex about rurality, right? And I think, uh, you know, what you're doing and what you're talking about is really complex, right? It is, even though there are some of those stereotypes, you're not kind of leaning into them in the way that people often disregard them. Um, So I'd love for you to maybe talk a bit about like that rural space, like what um, and how you kind of weave that through here, like Seidel Creek um, appears not in every single one of these, but but appears or is adjacent or there's a nod to it in a number of these. So could you talk a little bit about weaving this sort of rural space together and these these diverse rural stories together? Sure. Well, it's interesting that you say that, like kind of moving back and forth between an urban and rural space, because even though I I live in a very rural area, I've taught for well almost 20 years. I taught in Pittsburgh at Duquesne and Chatham University. So I felt like I was straddling two worlds and I absolutely love the urban setting. My son lives in Pittsburgh now. I love to be there, but I also really require a lot of solitude and I'm a nature person. So um, while Pittsburgh does have beautiful parks and things, I really like being kind of in the middle of a place where there is really no sense of development, you know, happening. Um, But I will say that when I, the first time I really thought about how books take on rural and city settings or urban settings. I had a class at, um, uh, in my, I went to a state school, a state college in Indiana university of Pennsylvania. And, um, my one teacher, Susan Gaddy, she had a class called country life, city life. And so in it, we read Sarah Orne, Jew, uh, Jewett's, um, 
the country of pointed firs about rural Maine. And then she kind of compared that to like Theodore Dreiser's Sister Carrie, a very urban novel. And in that class, we talked about like, what are the differences in ways that authors take on a rural and urban setting? And what are the stereotypes held within it? And where are they kind of busting through the stereotypes? So that, that idea of thinking about that um, how we write about spaces and especially those two different spaces was set in my mind really early on, thanks to that teacher. And so I really started to seek out authors who were writing about uh, rural settings. And one of the other things that we mentioned that she mentioned to us in that class is that sometimes regional authors weren't taken as seriously, especially female authors who were writing about regional places. So that also stuck with me. So I was delighted whenever I was introduced then to Louise Erdrich and Annie Prue and Elizabeth Strout and people who were writing about these uh, a little bit more uh, rural spaces or clashes between rural and urban, and they were women and they were regional writers, but they were being celebrated. And then, of course, there are so many male authors that are regional authors that are celebrated. So there were lots of those examples as well. But and William Faulkner was one for me for sure, and then later on Kent Harriff. But for me, I just feel that um, I wanted to make sure I tried to balance out the fact that I my huge interest is in the environment and in nature, but I didn't want it to only be a book about nature. I wanted it to be about how people in a rural setting live in the rural setting. It's part of them, but there are also some sorts of conflicts within the setting as well. So in other words, in one of the stories, Seidel Creek, the title story, there is this idea that the, that the creek is magical and there's a su- superstition that it might be magical. But within that story, I was able to talk about, you know, if you mistreat the, the setting or you mistreat nature or you in particular, you mistreat this particular creek, bad things can happen. And um, so that was sort of my way, my code for saying, okay, you know, we don't want to mistreat these beautiful creeks in our state. We have a lot of polluted creeks in our state due to um, resource uh, exploitation. And we have environmentalists who are working really hard to make it a more beautiful spot. But I just wanted to make sure I talked a little bit in this book about how tenuous and complicated and fragile the relationship is between nature and people. Um, So, but I didn't want it to be too heavy-handed either. Um, so I think for me, what was most surprising though about the book is that I didn't realize I had mentioned a creek in as many stories as I had. And this, the collection was originally titled Seeds because it was about growth and about infertility and about farming. And then my agent said, you know, I think the title needs to be Seidel Creek because you mentioned the creeks in um, your stories and it seems to be a theme, you know, that's, that goes throughout. She's just brilliant. I can't say enough about her. And I was so happy because it, it sort of really came together then at that point, the thematically. Um, but yeah, so for, I didn't really have, I guess it happened organically. I guess this all happened organically. I didn't really have control over it. It just sort of came out that way. You know, when you were talking to you mentioned there are many things um, like you talked about. uh, One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is also your female characters, because you do tackle both male and female characters. But I just the way you thought about um, thinking about sort of 
motherhood or mothering um, or or and that the complexities about wanting to be a mother and not being able to be a mother, I think, was one of the things that um, came through even when um, which is the story about the boy. You have one about the young man who um, uh, was driving around driving his he found the woman who was um, going to take the baby. I can't yes, think. Yes, abduction story. Yes. Yes. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. So even with that, right, we have this these ideas of mothering and motherhood. So I don't know if that's something you thought about or um, that you want to talk a little bit more about, but some of those characters and those ideas. Yeah, I had. Um, so, okay. So growing up, I I was a person who was actually diagnosed with endometriosis. So this, the title story is in that way, that part of it's autobiographical, but I did not have a magical creek to help me, nor did I have Miss Jean, a medicine woman to help me. In fact, I wasn't really diagnosed with it until it was, it probably took about 10 years or more to be diagnosed. So I did struggle with infertility. My husband and I did. Um, and so while we were going through it, we kept that mostly quiet and to ourselves. Um, I had feelings of failure almost that I wasn't able to become pregnant, you know, and I realized, and so I started doing all this research on women all over the world and what it means when a woman has a miscarriage and what it means when a woman can't have children and how the different social mores like kind of surround that ordeal, right? And how some cultures handle it differently than others. And in my own particular family and friend culture, you know, it was seen as a tragedy almost if you weren't able to have children. And, um, but, you know, I, I also was living a life where we had been married nine years before we had my son and we had a wonderful life without children as well, you know, and a wonderful life now we've had with him. So I, I really pulled from that experience of, you know, what are another stereotype again of what are women dealing with in this culture still? If they decide, A, not to have children, or B, they can't, or C, they decide to have multiple children, or they decide to stay at just one. You know, what? there are all kinds of decisions people make and all kinds of interesting ways that we as women are either celebrated or criticized for those decisions, or even ones we're not making. So I definitely wanted to bring women into the stories that we're dealing with this. Um for me, I think for the most part, um, I, I just kept finding that every time I would sit down to write a story, the theme kept coming up. And so there are several stories I've written that I didn't put in the book um, that, that deal with this as well. But it was something my friends and I talked about a lot. Um, but I didn't like that there was some shame attached to um not being able to get pregnant or even shame attached to having an emergency childbirth situation or a flawed somehow childbirth situation because my son was born by C-section and it was a very emergency birth, big, big emergency birth. And even with that, I felt afterward, like, what did I do wrong? You know, so we have a lot of these feelings that are swirling around there and hopefully it's getting better, but I don't know. I've watched my nieces and I've watched um, my friends, children and other people go through similar things even now that they, I, that I went through in the 90s and early 2000s. So I don't know if much of it's changed. There's still a lot of weirdness around mothering. 
No, I and as someone who had an emergency section C-section as well, right, for her first my and I have two children and both of them were C-sections and and you know these stories go around like tell us a, your birthing story. When did you yeah. go into labor? And I'm like I have never been in labor. And people are like, "What?" "What?" And I'm like, "No." Like <laughs> but those those ideas that and and that's like so I was drawn like the what is it? The four are the one yeah. about the young girls. That story I loved because I love there was this sort of sadness but this also celebration and these girls like these you know these these preteen girls thinking about like what does it mean to care about somebody and that should be like valued too right like everybody talked about the awards they got at school at the you know when they go back to school and they're like but we help this woman have her you know take care of her and be there for her and so I loved like that idea of like how these the communities and 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 um, people came together as well in thinking about the, those birthing stories and those stories of yeah and what that means well that story in particular um i had read a book um well i had seen online interviews with a with a therapist and then read a book that she had written her name's courtney armstrong and i think the book's called rethinking trauma treatment and it's about finding resilience and um, using a, a theory called reconsolidation theory in dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder that's associated with pregnancy and birth. Uh, because after I had had my son, I was diagnosed with PTSD, like postnatal PTSD, I think it's called. And um, so with this, with this idea, she has, um, it's like a five-step theory. I think it's recon is the acronym, but it's where you are supposed to look back on an event and try to rewrite it in your mind so that you can um, become more resilient after the trauma and not be so plagued by it. And I had never written particularly about my time in bed rest that I was dealing with bed rest. I was on bed rest, I think for 13 weeks. And, um, and so I sat down one weekend and I thought, you know, what? I'm going to try this technique that this Courtney Armstrong suggests because I, I might be able to do it. And so I started writing. And so that pro- that story is probably weirdly the most autobiographical story of the collection. And yet it is not my story at all in that Cinta Johns is on bed rest like I was the same amount of time. She has her baby in September like I did. But I my mother was living. Um I didn't have grandparents. Um, I, I had a loving husband like is in, like the guy in the story. Um, but I didn't have four little girls in the neighborhood who were willing to take care of me or help take care of me. Um, but those four little girls were similar to the girls I grew up with. Um, so I was kind of like, I was me, Cinta Johns, and I was Lainey too, dealing with this whole idea of how a neighborhood comes together. And um, one thing that I was sad about during my time on bed rest was that I had to be sort of secluded because they worried about um, different infections I could have gotten. It was just a very complicated situation, but I didn't have my, neither of my grandmothers were living. I would have loved to have had a Nana around (laughs) that would have helped me and would have dealt with superstition. So this story was weirdly a, a wonderful way to recast or retell my actual bed rest story. And you know, strangely, what Courtney Armstrong says 
afterwards, after people do this technique, is that sometimes they're not plagued by the nightmares or triggers of that trauma after they've rewritten it and made a new narrative. Um, she uses music and writing and all kinds of things, dance, all kinds of things to help people with this. After I wrote that story, I no longer had bed rest nightmares. And my son's 22. I had had bed rest and delivery nightmares his whole life. You know, every once in a while, I would just be triggered by something and have one. I haven't had one since I wrote the story. So I don't know if that says anything, but I just, I, I love that book. I love that book. It's just an amazing way of looking at therapy for people that go through that. So, so something worked. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and you have these other stories too that kind of talk about community coming together and and, and what that means, and in these in these ways that I think, um, like I really loved those red boots and and the complexity, like what that was kind of saying about how. Um, rural communities can come together and support each other and also some complexities in what that means. So can you talk a little bit about those red, since we're, you know, talk, can you talk a little bit about those red boots and writing that and sort of that community and what you were thinking of? Yeah. So with that one, um, that was a strange one because the trigger for that story is the weirdest triggering kind of strange example of how a story can come to you. I had, I'm a big gardener. And I like to feed songbirds <laughs> and I like to have butterflies and birds and all kinds of wildlife near my garden. But one day, um, a huge Cooper's hawk, um, flew down and was sitting on a post near my garden. And I took a picture of it and I sent it to my husband. I said, what kind of hawk is this? Isn't this amazing? You know? And he said, yeah, it's out hunting. It's out hunting your little songbirds. Like he said it as a joke. And I knew this. I know what raptors are. I know this. I study birds. But for some reason, there was this like cognitive dissonance. I don't know. It was some kind of disconnect that I didn't realize I had brought a situation upon myself and my birds where I brought a predator in and I didn't even realize I had done it. Um, so at the time I had been writing a story, this story about a young woman who's, who goes missing and they're trying to figure out who, who has taken this girl? Has she run away? What's happened to her? And I wanted to think about like, how was the community complicit in what maybe happened to this girl? Because all of the waitresses wear these really sexy kind of hooter like uh, outfits. And did that, those outfits put these girls at risk? Um, what could have been the reasons that these girls might've been at risk for having someone abduct them? If that is in fact what happened, because at the beginning of the story, we don't know what happened to her and no one has an idea, but they start making assumptions about certain people. So my two characters, my two main characters are they're a gay couple who have been in love forever and have this loving relationship and they're very supportive of one another. And the community, though it's a little small rural town, the stereotype is that sometimes, you know, a, a gay couple, especially at the time, they're older men now, especially at the time they would have come out, the community might not have been supportive of them. And yet this community was very supportive of them. However, as the story unfolds, the community starts to rally against other groups like outsiders, like transient workers. And it was interesting for the men to see these two, this couple, to see how this place can turn against anyone at any time. Even though they were lucky that they hadn't been turned against themselves, 
they could turn against uh, someone else. And so that story became really complicated. So I guess the hawk, the idea of the hawk uh, became important to me because I thought, how are we all complicit somehow in the tragedies that happen around us without even meaning, to, uh, without even having any idea that we're being complicit, that any idea that we're setting up issues or problems. Um, that was a really important thing to be thinking about for me at the time I was writing that story in particular, but really all of the stories, because, you know, when the book, when we were putting the book together, um, I put most of the stories together before the pandemic, but then during the pandemic, um, you know, I, I started thinking about how important it is to look out for your neighbors in ways that we never had to think about before. You know, we're putting everyone at risk with this with this horrible pandemic, you know? And so it started to play with all of the things in my mind that I was dealing with. And um, yeah, I was really excited to write that story. And, and I hope, I don't want to give away any spoilers because it's one of the longer stories in the book, but I hope the ending is satisfying. But, um, but I think the main message of that story is just, you know, how small towns work, how rumors are spread and how people can turn against each other and how they can come together, you know? Yes, and I and I th I think I got all of that <laughs> from it, and especially like I really loved how the main character, you know, the 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 FBI would come in, and it was still like you you know let us deal with this, but he was still like, but I can figure, you know, like yeah. sort of like like he it was also like I know these people and I know this space, and and I'm gonna be able to figure this out or think through this in these ways. So yeah, I think yeah. I think all of that was there. Oh, good, good. <laughs> so another one, so I have a couple more I want to talk about. Another one, um, because you mentioned sort of at the beginning, you have this um, somewhat magic creek, but this is not the, you through, you also in, um, I really love Shell um, and this idea, right? So this is another um, one where it's about that um, sort of, I don't want to say super otherworldly, but sort of reading, right. Reading the, um, and you, you just talked about your love for birds. So I guess that's some of where this comes from. But can you talk a little bit about shell and that piece and that ending just, uh, yeah, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that story came about because I was in a class with a wonderful writing teacher, Sherry Flick. She's a local Pittsburgh author. And she would take us to these spaces around the city. And we went to a um, photography studio called Silver Eye Studio. I don't know if it still exists, but it was in the south side of Pittsburgh at the time. And a, and an, um, a photographer, Rosamond Purcell, had um, her photographs were on the walls at this during this week when we were doing our class. And she took photographs of birds and photographs of nests and eggs. And um, one of the photographs that was featured in the show was um, red, the eggs of red-winged blackbirds, which have these little squiggles um, on them. And when I looked at the picture of the eggshells, this really enlarged picture of them, it looked almost like there was a story unfolding. It looked like there were human figures or symbols. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if someone looked at eggshells and decided what futures were by reading the eggshells? Um, so I started writing a story and um, I, I, I got it completely written. And what really informed the story, though, I started writing it. And I, I, I think I told my mom um, initially that I was writing about this person that could read futures. And she said, you know, 
your great grandmother was rumored to be a clairvoyant. And I said, no, I didn't know that. So she starts telling me these stories about my great grandmother who thought she could see visions and things like that. Oh, oh, I have to research this now. You know, maybe this is in my family, whatever. Um, and then I also had heard about um, on my dad's side, that's Italian, uh, you know, the people on that side of the family believed in the evil eye and, you know, whether you could curse someone or not. So I thought, okay, too many similarities here. I need to research this. So I researched it a little more to see if people actually did read eggshells and I didn't find anything about it, but I did find out that people do read the egg yolk. Um, they'll break the, the, the egg open and read it. I can't remember what it's called, but there's an actual name for that. So I started writing that story, but at the same time, again, I was dealing with symptoms of PTSD and I needed to find um, ways in my own life to find um, a sense of control or a sense of um, order. And I really, the character of Tiller Shanti really affected me deeply because as I was writing him, I was thinking, oh, he's doing what I want to do. He's trying to find some order in his life. Um, and it occurred to me, oh, what was his trauma? Well, maybe it was Vietnam. You know, maybe it was being in the war. And then I was able to write his backstory and, and, and write about his wife in that way. And I do think that sometimes um, people who are suffering with PTSD, you know, we're searching all the time, looking for ways to find order. Some of us have OCD. Some of us, you know, have particular... Um, hobbies like knitting or things that you can do that are, um, that have repetition or order in them. Um, some people are potters, you know, and I started researching a lot about that at the time. So Tiller Shanti really for me was, um, a complex character because he was blessed or cursed with the ability to read the future. And I struggle with that all the time. Like, would I, do I want to know the future? Do I not want to know the future? So it was, it was actually a really tough story to write, emotionally tough story to write. But after I wrote it, I was very happy I did because I, I do think that sometimes on the page and in movies, people with PTSD are seen as, um, you know, they're people that might um, react in very angry ways or they might um, have some dysfunction that's very, that the people were very aware of because you can see it very clearly on the outside. But most people that I know that have PTSD, they're walking around, you know, just the same as everyone else. And you'd never know what's going on in their mind and what's triggering them. You have no idea because they're living normal lives, quote unquote, normal, whatever that means. Um, but the dysfunction is all internal. And, and so that's Tiller was a quiet man, a very settled looking man. And, but he was dealing with some serious, tragic memories and his wife was as well. And I just, I just thought that I needed to write his story, make him a realistic person with PTSD and make his wife equally a realistic person with PTSD. So, and you have sort of that, I thinking about trauma comes throughout. And so, I mean, I could talk to you for a long time, but I want to talk to you, just ask about two more stories. Um, but one that is sort of gets at thinking about how children um, are raised in traumatic spaces is loosed. And so can you talk about like that story is, is tough. Right. Um, and, 
and also gets at what you talked about, that complexity in straddling the sort of the city. You have a, you know, a number of those that straddling the sort of rural and the city and, and those kinds of things. So could you talk a little bit about that story and tell about that story as well? Yeah. So that story came about because at the time I was, um, my son was playing sports and I just have one son and um, he was not a very terribly aggressive kid. In fact, I would probably, most of my friends would attest to this, but I'd scream from the um, sidelines or scream from the bleachers, you know, foul someone, you know, do something, you know? And I, I was an athlete growing up and I was kind of aggressive kid, you know? Um, So I was fascinated by sports for both young men and young women. And at the time it was really popular, um, the MMA octagon for young kids, this, you know, extreme fighting, they were getting kids involved in it. There was a large number of kids that were involved in it. And, um, I was fascinated by it because the, in the interviews with the people whose children were involved, they, the, the parents were definitely living vicariously through their children. I mean, it was clear. And that was something I had, was even doing with my son with basketball. So I could kind of get it. But how far do you take um, sports or anything with your children? How far as a parent do you take it till it hits the point where it's exploiting them? I mean, we look at young girls who are in um, beauty beauty contests and we look at cheerleading and we look at all the things that our kids can be involved in Um, being in the band and, you know, whether they're going to be first or second chair suddenly becomes so important, you know, or if our kids are the best hunter or if they, you know, it just, we go a little crazy as parents sometimes in this particular story. um, I was thinking about this. And then at the same time, um, Michael Vick, was being um, investigated for, you know, the dogfighting rings. And so I thought about that. I thought about, you know, I can't really pass judgment on these people unless I understand what they're doing. And I'm a dog lover. So I was finding myself being very angry about what I was reading about dogfighting. And then I was also as a mom thinking, well, I don't think I'd put my kid in the octagon, you know, but yet I'm yelling for him from the bleachers to foul someone. So how am I different from anyone that makes a decision to become involved in especially blood sports. You know, we have a huge history of blood sports. And um, so that's why he, you know, he was nicknamed Lucullus because, you know, we have this long history of, of doing this kind of um, entertainment, what people would call entertainment. So I was really struggling again with trying to figure out what makes these people tick. And for me, Luke Abraham um, was willing to sacrifice his kids. He was willing to put them in the ring, much like he was able to put gamecocks in the ring and dogs in the ring. They were kind of they became no different. And I think because he was dealing with this internalized classism that I struggle with as well. You know, I grew up in a in a town where, you know, my family was working poor, working class. My dad was from, you know, a family that had like his, his father had come over from Italy and worked in the coal mines, you know, and we weren't always looked at as someone that was an elite group at all, you know? And so how did that affect me growing up and how, how far would I go in order to make um, my son have a better life than I had experienced or a better life than my father had? So I was trying to find some empathy there or at least understanding of how, what could push someone to that point 
Um, I don't know. That's a tough story. And there are a lot of tough stories in this collection. And in fact, I, I worried about putting it out there. And my, my agent and I had a lot of talk talks about this, like how dark, how heavy is this book? And, and, you know, is it fair to put something out there that is a heavy for me in the end, I hope that in each one of these characters for as disturbing as they are, and their transgressions are sometimes very disturbing, that maybe I still tapped into a bit of humanity that maybe you could see briefly even a note of remorse or a note of at least self-awareness or understanding perhaps in each one of the characters. I'm hoping, but that'll be up to the readers to decide. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you about one more. That's a shorter one. And there, um, so where Lottie lived. Oh yeah. Which is another tough one, but in a different way. But um, can you talk a bit about I, like and and as we've been talking, then you know your gardening comes in there, but and and sort of thinking through and thinking through trauma. But can you talk a little bit about where Lottie lived as well? Yeah, yeah. So I live in a little neighborhood, probably very similar to where Lottie would have lived, and uh, there are many, many. Um, Mary statues <laughs> in people's yards and they're all listing to the side, you know, because sometimes they're just not, you know, we don't keep up our gardens like we should. But um, I had a, uh, uh, there was a house across, across the street from where I live that had been abandoned years and years and years ago. And there were beautiful flowers in this yard. And I so much wanted to go over and take these flowers. I did. I did. It was horrible. I would look over and I'd think, oh, the weeds are taking them over. I need to just go over. I'll just quarter them. I'll just take some of them. And I thought, how rude is that? You know, like, I don't even know who planted these flowers. And that was it. I would, there I go down the rabbit hole because I thought, okay, who planted those flowers? Now, the woman that lived in that house, <laughs> her life is nothing like Lottie's life at all from what I've heard. And I've done some research nothing at all like it. But I was fascinated by this idea of in in an environment like where we live, some people have called some of my stories gothic. And I remember thinking, no, they're not really gothic. I don't think they're gothic. But in a way, um, supernatural events sometimes happen in my stories. Um, it is a once thriving world, which is decaying in the present, but there are remnants of the past that kind of come up and show themselves. So with that story, I really wanted to think about, you know, how how did this how did this story unfold and how did this house that could have been at one time very beautiful, what made it rot? What made it become this eyesore that needed to be raised or needed to be sold off in a, in a you know, for taxes? what possibly could have gone wrong? And then of course, when you read the story, you find out that the backstory of this woman is just horrifying. And, um, and the neighbors really have no idea and they really don't want to know her story. All they want is they want to get in that house and see what's in it, or they want to profit from it, make money off of it. And so that's like the downside of neighboring where we, things can be happening around us and we should be intervening and we're not. And that, that was important for me to write about. Because again, 
I felt it, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, I could probably talk to you for, you have what, 22? Yeah. Or, does that sound right? <laughs> Did I count right? 22 yeah. pieces in this collection. So you have a Y collection. This will come out May 16th. So it'll be out soon. Um, so do you have anything? My final question is always, are you working on anything right now? Or is there anything with this since it's coming out that you want to kind of talk about or promote? What's your final promotion or, or th- what's going on? Well, first of all, thank you so much for taking an interest in the book and reading it and having such wonderful questions because I am just so grateful to be able to talk about it. I mean, these stories, I've lived with them, you know, for so many years and it's so wonderful to now share them with people and whatever people decide to take away from them, they decide to take away. But I do hope that um, when people read them, I hope they have a better understanding of the people in, in rural America and, and not just in rural settings, but in urban settings as well. I think it's really easier for us to walk past people or kind of be in our own silo and not really look out past our own understanding of the world. And now more than ever, you know, I think we have to take closer a closer look at people and try to find some empathy if we can, or at least at the very least, begin to try to start understanding where they're coming from. So I hope that that the book will do that. I am working on um, a couple novel projects and also a nonfiction project that's it's really important to me because my my dad was an angler and he loved being around creeks too. And my son now, who's 22, is um, right now at this time getting his certification to become a cave diver in Florida in the natural springs underwater caves. And he's very, very much like me, an environmentalist, and we're really connected to the water. So I'm trying to work right now on a nonfiction piece about how water has been part of my life, part of my husband's life, who does reclamation work and soil and uh, erosion control work with his excavating business. So we're really a water family. (laughs) So I'm working right now on a big um, project that's nonfiction and a little bit speculative. So I'm kind of moving into that realm with nonfiction, which I find really exciting. So that's what I'm working on now. And uh, we'll see what happens. But Awesome. Again, this was Jolene McElwain, whose um, debut collection of short stories, Seidel Creek, will be out in the middle of May. Thanks for talking with me, Jolene. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate it.